Hello, everybody. Dr. Ron Dalrymple with Mind Shock, the endless question. Back with you again. Please note, folks, we have two different programs. One is called Mind Shock, the endless question, here produced on Anchor FM, a great station. We have another program called just Mind Shock, exclamation point, produced on Healthy Life Net, which goes out to currently 135 countries on 65 platforms to 1.2 million viewers. The show on Anchor FM is also growing like crazy, folks, so hang in there. A little bit behind our episodes, we're working on getting caught up. We're going to start now a fascinating series called the Genius Series, which is analysis of and a psychological profile of some of the greatest minds in history, because our job is to help you unleash within yourself your great powers, your abilities, which are rest within throughout your life, and perhaps you've never known about, or perhaps you had some suspicion of, but have yet to really untap and unleash. In any case, we're going to start today with a really great, great, great mind. We'll get to it in a moment. First off, on these programs, our job is to take you to the outer limits of the mind and to the inner limits of the mind. Help us discover who we really are. The theme of our shows is the evolution of the supermind, the greater mind within. Now, many advances in science and thought come from polymaths throughout history. Polymaths are people who study different fields of knowledge very intensively and figure out how those fields work. They then apply that analysis to other fields of analysis and then come up with often great, creative, brilliant ideas. Some great polymaths throughout history, of course, are Nikolai Tesla, Dr. Thomas Young, Einstein, Edison, Aristotle, Mozart, Many people in history have accomplished tremendous things because they have unleashed within them their own supermind. Now, some of these greatest polymaths, in fact, have changed history. They've changed the world. Remember, a polymath is somebody who analyzes fields of analysis very thoroughly, breaks them down, compares all variables, every other variable in that field as best they can, comes up with new functions, new ideas, new insights then maps them or applies them to other fields and drawing from both very new creative ideas, often at a higher paradigm. One of the greatest polymaths in history we know, of course, is Aristotle, also Socrates and Plato, great Greeks. Aristotle created what's called the first organon, which is analysis of nature, where he analyzed and classified plants and animals from around the world to create this vast classification system for the first time, at least in modern history which really helped advance science. In fact, he was known for 2,000 years as the scientist. And his thought, which the people went back to time and time again, their analysis and understanding of science. So what he said was taken as being absolute law. We'll discuss later how that, of course, is a mistake, because things constantly change, things are constantly discovered, and the perception of law, the understanding of law, universal law, keeps changing. The laws don't change, but our perception of it does as we grow in understanding. Now, in 325 AD, there was a Council of Nicaea put together by Emperor Constantine in Rome who wanted to create a whole new method of spreading the new state religion they adopted at that time of Christianity to help organize the world at that time, which mostly, of course, was Europe and moving into the Middle East. And what they created through this ultimately became a system of control. We'll talk about that the idea of the greater illumination of the inner mind and so forth versus external systems of control exacted by people who wish to control the entire world or one country or one area. 
So in any case, the church ruled Europe until the Middle Ages, until Martin Luther came along and he posted 95 theses or concepts, ideas, on the door of the Schlosskirch, which is the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517. This also shocked and changed the world. It became the Protestant or Protestant Reformation, which means it changed the direction of thought away from the classical church concepts to many different new directions. This led to many wars, great genocide on both sides, many horrible things came from it. But many new directions of thought later evolved from that. The Reformation also led later on to the Renaissance. Now, Sir Francis Bacon was a great figure during that time. We'll get into his life today. We're talking about Sir Francis Bacon, part one, who's a great polymath and great genius in history, little understood today and little known. Very few people know about him. In fact, he really did help change the world behind the scenes. He once said that he was not seeking honor for himself at all, but rather the advancement and dignity and enduring good of all mankind. He kept focused on the future and his plan, but what he did was for the good of all, not for his own ego. He wanted to help arouse a second golden age of learning in a Renaissance. So he helped create that golden Renaissance, which was flourishing in Europe when he was a young man he brought to England and therefore influenced much of the world. The whole concept is that mankind must awaken to a higher state of consciousness than just being focused upon the material world around us and the functions of the lower ego. Now, in November 1963, the first folio of the plays of William Shakespeare was published. This is a very studied set of literature. And through that study, many people digging into this, won't get into all the details, it gets very complicated. But a number of researchers discovered that through an analysis of all his different plays, they found other stories written within, hidden within by cipher text within his plays, which revealed very different stories. First off, the hidden messages revealed many state secrets and scandals, such as the marriage of the Virgin Queen or Elizabeth I, who called herself the Virgin Queen, claiming to be unmarried and, and of course, a virgin. Then she actually was involved in all kinds of murder, intrigue, corruption, and lies at the highest level of government. It also revealed through these ciphers that she was actually the mother of Sir Francis Bacon. The he was her unacknowledged firstborn son. Now, Bacon was raised by two neighbors, two close friends of the queen, Nicholas and Anne Bacon, who lived next door to the palace. So she saw Francis every day, bounced him on her knee, and brought him the greatest education in the world. In the idealism of his youth, he envisioned a grand plan to change the world. He sought the freedom mind, freedom mind of man from a straitjacket of religious and secular orthodoxy. He rejected the science of his day as lacking in practical accomplishment. Remember, that means Aristotle, right? He's gotten stuck on Aristotle. He foresaw a time when science and industry would lift the enslaving concepts of the past, which kept mankind stuck in certain systems of delusional belief. Among the many works of his, of his first years was, and his final years, was the New Atlantis. It was a grand vision of a promised land which he helped to build later on in America. For him, the idealism of youth did not fade. He was a prophet of the modern age and of a future golden age. Much of what he foresaw came to pass. He talked about a great instauration, his plan for the remaking of society, 
that's still not fully accomplished, of course, the world is still in chaos. One thing that many scholars do agree on is that Bacon was a true author of the works of Shakespeare. This is also revealed through the hidden ciphers. There's a Dr. William, sorry, Dr. Orville Owen, another lady who worked on analyzing all the plays who found these passages taken out of context, which told a totally different story. Once they analyzed this on a cipher wheel, which Bacon had described how to build in some of his earlier writings, they came up with a totally different perception of history. This is a metaphor for what happens often when we're given a lot of false information through time, through history, through the media. We discover later that very different things are going on behind the scenes. In any case, they found two different sets of cipher in his plays, which revealed the fact that Francis Bacon was not the son of Sir Nicholas Bacon and his wife, but he was incredibly the son of Elizabeth Tudor, Elizabeth I, Elizabeth the Great, England's Virgin Queen, and he was a child whom she recognized privately, but not publicly. Now, Elizabeth was born on 17th November, 1558, until her death on 24th of March, 1603. She had actually married Robert Dudley, later the Lord of Leicester, who had been her close paramour for many years. They were part of the Tudor line, T-U-D-O-R, the Tudor line ruled England from 1485 until 1603. The first Tudor was Edward VII, his son was Henry VIII from 1509 to 1547, who ruled very ruthlessly and had a very destructive influence upon the world. His son, Edward VI, didn't last very long. Then Mary, his first daughter, ruled for five years, and Elizabeth took over for 44 years. And throughout the reign of the Tudors, there were many, many murders committed, many, much genocide as they fought over religious concepts. And Francis Bacon was born into this matrix, this world of chaos, intrigue, court intrigue, manipulation, deceit, but also knowing about a higher state of mind. So in any case, he worked for many, many years to help illuminate mankind, often to a total lack of public recognition. We'll get into that in a moment, but he was responsible for much of the birth of the modern world. So he thrived in his life as a young son at first of Sir Nicholas Bacon and his Lady Anne. It wasn't until he was 15 that he learned of his true identity. That happened in a most disturbing manner. He's being taunted by an adopted cousin of his, Robert Cecil, in court, where Cecil was calling him some really vicious names. Francis blew up, struck Robert. I think he regretted this for the rest of his life. There's a big blow up in court, and Elizabeth stepped into it and admitted from the court that Francis was her true son. Robert Cecil had called Francis a bastard, the bastard son of the queen. And at, in those days, that was the worst thing you could say to somebody. So the queen stepped in, admitted several times that Francis was her son and so forth, but it had been kept secret for his protection and so she could maintain being the queen. Because in those days, if she admitted that Robert Dudley was her husband, he would, have made, he would have been made king by the court. He would have insisted he become the king replacing her, which she was not about to settle for. So in any case, she had her close friend, Nicholas Bacon, and his wife, Anne, adopt the son secretly, adopt her son and raise him next door. Now, Anne's first son by Nicholas was Anthony, Anthony Bacon, who became a very close friend to Francis, and they worked together later on on a Shakespearean place. They became close friends. So as a young boy, Francis was very different. He was a gifted child. 
pardon me, who excelled in many things. He was being taught a wide, wide field of study. He was taught by some great tutors supplied by the Queen. She got, of course, the greatest mentors in the world at that time to come to London to, to train him, to teach him. He spoke seven or eight languages by 10, 11, 12 years old fluently. Also began writing plays at a very young age and many brilliant insights and was the delight of his mother and much of the court. They also were connected to William Cecil, Lord Burghley, who became the great Secretary of State. Now Robert Cecil, his self-appointed enemy, was part of that family. In any case, because of that great power on his side, Robert Cecil was able to damage Francis throughout his life in many profound and unfortunate ways. So remember a great story we talked about in the transformational journey, walks on two legs. The protagonist must have a very strong antagonist to arise to the greatest level of development and power. So the antagonist pushes them to gain more insight, to grow, to learn, to become greater than they were, and to accomplish much more in life, which is what Francis did, but in secret. Now in 1572, nature took up a challenge to Aristotle, which began to really change how people saw science. There was at that time a star that flashed through the sky, a marvelous new star, and a constellation Cassiopeia. Now Aristotle claimed that the stars were fixed and would not change. This shocked the world because it contradicted the great Aristotle. So people looking at science or scientific thought began to change how they saw things. Now Paracelsus was a Swiss mystic who had predicted this. And we'll get to him later on. Paracelsus was also a great polymath and genius in history. But in any case, this really shocked people. And Francis understood, well, things are not always fixed. Things that are set up as paradigms of thought and belief might well be wrong. So in any case, this helped form his thinking in a new direction of creating new things, new ideas, new concepts. So he's about 12 years old at this time. He's already evolving as a young genius. He was a prodigy. He then went to Trinity College with his adopted brother, Anthony, in Cambridge. He spent almost three years, but he found that it was a very fixated type system. And he later said that he's not allowed to think for himself. Anybody who had an original idea there was quickly stepped on. What was happening then psychologically was that he was evolving into what Piaget called formal operations, where cognitive processes jump into more abstraction, where a person can think more abstractly. And somebody as brilliant as he was could think in not just three dimensions, but n dimensions, which means four, five, six, 10, 12, 20, whatever. Very bright people can do that. They can think many dimensions at once and analyze things other people can't see. So it's important to understand that he got by the time he got to Cambridge, he was already educated way beyond most of his peers because of his training in a court provided by his mother, Elizabeth. He also was associated with a place called Gorhambury, where they had visited quite often near an old Roman town of Verulamium, which is 20 miles northwest of London, which still contained the only Roman theater known to have built in England. So it's very interesting that the greatest playwright in the world, arguably, grew up near a uh, an old, old place where plays have been put on thousands of years before. In any case, later on, James I, who replaced Elizabeth, granted Francis 
the peerage, he became known as Baron Verulam, Viscount of St. Alban, something denied him for a long time by his own mother because she wanted to keep secret the fact that he was her son. In any case, what he did was he worked with, with others and was able to produce works in this world which have shocked, shocked humankind to know that one person could do as much as he did and remain very much in secret. So, for example, he started to write the Shakespearean plays with William Shakespeare as a front. William Shakespeare is a man from Stratford-upon-Avon who had fourth-grade education, did not go to a school where they had even an English primer, very uneducated, rumored to be an alcoholic, who was often the object or the butt of Bacon's jokes. The character of Falstaff in many of his plays was has been revealed actually a representation of the true Shakespeare. Shakespeare, William Shakespeare owned 10% of the Globe Theater where the plays were put on initially. And because of that, they allowed him to attach his name to them as a cover because his mother said, do not reveal who you are, what you're doing. Many of the plays were satirical and revealed many facts about the corruption behind the throne, which his mother would not tolerate it. She would not let him be involved in that. And the cross to queen was very, very dangerous as we'll discuss later on. In any case, Bacon had been trained by Robert Asham, who was a, a brilliant teacher and tutor of the times, who thought that it was important to teach children with love and understanding to help them learn and develop their inner qualities, which, of course, Bacon wrote about in his plays. In fact, we all have a deeper nature, divine nature within us. Our job is to bring that forth in life. So he emphasizes individuality, his instructor did, not mass education, not sitting there like a lemming just being taught to a robot back what you're taught. So in any case, Bacon learned how to teach from this, which he later used to teach the world through his plays and through other means. So remember, he could easily speak before he entered Cambridge at 12, some seven languages. So really a brilliant guy. In fact, Asham wrote a book for Elizabeth, for Francis, to help train the elite or the privileged, which is very interesting. She commissioned him to do so. Now, later on, Elizabeth got involved, as I said before, Robert Dudley, who came to Earl of Leicester. They married four months before Francis was born. And interestingly enough, Amy Robsart, who was married to Robert Dudley beforehand, died mysteriously by falling down a flight of stairs. They suspected it might have been intrigue involved in this, clearing the way for Elizabeth and Robert Dudley to marry. It's not known exactly what happened or done by whom, but very suspicious. And again, in those days, there's vast corruption in the court system. So Francis Young world was filled with exciting characters of all classes and all backgrounds. So compare him to the real William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare grew up with a great deficit of education, a deficit of learning. Well, he was known to have some wit and so forth and be kind of a character, but he didn't have the training or the experience with the world courts world philosophies, how courts work, which are revealed in great detail in Shakespeare's plays, so written by Bacon. Also, the analysis of psychological issues. Bacon understood human psychology very well and was one of the early psychologists, in fact. There was another individual who came into the scene by the name of Robert Devereux, who was the actual second son of Elizabeth, who was adopted out again by another family. And strangely enough, his father died, the adopted father died, some say of poison, and Robert Devereux was about 10, and then joined 
the, uh, the clan, as it were, around London to be close to Elizabeth and Francis. So in case Francis was 15, he learned the true story of his history. He was then sent to Paris for three years. We lived with uh, the queen and the king there. They knew who he was. All the courts of all the monarchs of Europe knew his true story. They knew he was the son of Elizabeth, and therefore he was treated as royalty, which he was. They expected him to be the next king of England, which didn't work out for various reasons we'll discuss later. But in Paris from 15 to 18, he fell in love with the princess there, and she was the basis of a story, Romeo and Juliet. Suppose he fell in love with her totally, gave his heart to her, and it was his one true love for life. She, of course, married elsewhere, which broke his heart. In any case, think of the matrix he was raised in. He was raised in a court system, didn't know who he was until 15 years old. He was surrounded by intrigue and backstabbing and manipulating and very great dangers because he could have easily been murdered as being the next in line to the throne of England. He knew this, of course. So to express himself, he created Shakespearean plays for many, many years. He also, in 1620, published a book called Nova Morganum. Remember, we mentioned that Aristotle wrote the first, the first Organon 2,000 years before when Bacon came out with the Nova Morganum. It's the new organism or new analysis of the world. And in that, he proposed a scientific method. He had other publications about this. He talked about we must research the world scientifically to understand and discover how things work. So he gave basis to that. So think of this man who created a Shakespearean plays. He created a scientific method. He also brought to the world, he and his group of writers later on, translated all the great works of the world from Greek and Latin into English. Then with the Gutenberg printing press, which had been around for a while, they were able to distribute these works throughout the English-speaking world. He also was involved in creating the, the initial charter for the Commonwealth of Virginia, which in those days established a basis for English-speaking world to have their own place, as it were, in America. This is a massive Commonwealth, extending from what's now the Carolinas well into New England. Of course, that'll change over time, but he also played a role in that. He also, when he was in Paris, he came into contact with various metaphysical groups, which he then brought to London, brought to England and helped establish, and also helped establish their traveling to America, which helped give birth to the American Revolution. So the influence of Bacon upon the world was absolutely incredible. And thinking of the Matrix, he grew up in again. He was troubled on many sides, a brilliant guy who had to keep it hidden. So he had to work in secret for much of his life. So he was stimulated and pushed by the enemies he had, such as Robert Cecil and others, who could have easily gotten him killed. There were times when he became depressed, Bacon became depressed and whatnot, but he always pulled himself out of it because he believed in that higher power working through us. He was able to tap into that through his metaphysical studies. So very, very fascinating story about this young man. We evolved into one of the greatest minds of history. We're going to talk about him for a couple of episodes. Again, he resented the conditioning he was forced, was forced upon him by the world at that time, by people who wanted him to think a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain way, such as his mother, where his, his life could have been threatened if he disobeyed her openly. He also resented the conditioning at Cambridge, where he felt that he was forced to think a certain way. Uh, during this time, the age of experimental science was burgeoning. So Bacon and Galileo, who was across the sea in Italy, were two of his prophets. Remember, Copernicus had already made his discoveries about the motion of the planets, and Isaac Newton would discover gravity. But Bacon was coming out of this really fixated type world where people want to force you to think a certain way. 
and believe a certain way. This is true today also, where we have educational systems, the media, other forces try to shape our thoughts, our emotions, and our behavior in a certain directions in order to control us. But our true destiny, I would say, is it to discover that great power inside us, to unleash that creative power we all have within, wanting to come out, wanting to, to come out and express itself in the world. We all have creative abilities. We all have creative powers, which are absolutely massive. That's what our work is all about. Remember our film, The Endless Question, to our documentary on Amazon Prime for free. Talks about this, where we interview some of the greatest minds in the world. But the fact that the mind is energy, that we are spiritual beings who transcend this physical body, we can do great things in this world. We also have other books on Amazon. The first one goes way back to Eight Days of Creative Power, which taps into different ways to stimulate our creative thought, learn how to use our cognitive processes or thinking processes in a different way, learn how to unleash our emotional energies and focus them for more creativity and to change our behavior in such a way that we're constantly tapping into creative abilities and our creative powers to help change the world around us. The next book is The Inner Manager, which is a short mind development course where a young man goes on a journey, a transformational journey where he meets a brilliant woman who takes him up through a pyramid-shaped building, symbolizing the evolution of consciousness to higher and higher frequencies, where he learns more ideas about use of concentration, memory, will, creativity, imagination, tapping your subconscious mind for success, and actually creating a stronger bond between your conscious mind and your superconscious mind within, which we'll discuss much later down the road. Next book is I Love You, God, about a bunch of aphorisms you can speak every day to connect you to that higher power within. You can call that higher power whatever you wish. Some simply call it the higher power, the source, whatever. But know that there is a higher source of energy, a seed of light within us, which once awakened to, will bring into your world amazing things. It's not any specific religion by any means, but rather simply one of the actualities of the universe that we are connected to a much higher source. The next book is Quantum Field Psychology, which I wrote in 2004 up in the Italian Alps, living in the city of Aviano, Italy. And the Alps are a very beautiful place. So I wrote the book there in April 2004. That's really designed for the scientific folks who want to look at the math and physics and engineering of it all, how the mind works as energy. But that wasn't enough. We had to bring these ideas to the world in different forms. So we started making films. One is called Paradise Found 2015. That's on Amazon as well, where we talk about the discovery. It's an experimental film, kind of fun to make. It's about the discovery of the whole theory of quantum field psychology. And then, of course, the documentary is two hours long, which is free on Amazon Prime, The Endless Question. So check these out, folks. That's the end today of part one of our polymath series or our genius series, talking about polymaths and great geniuses through history. We're talking about how they tapped into that inner power and brought it forth. And of course, we all have that power within us waiting to be unleashed under the world to help transform this world to a much higher state. The great instauration, as it were, that Bacon talked about. In other words, a much greater place upon earth where people are free, truly free, can use their creative powers, we can tr totally transform this world from a chaos and tribal thinking as today to a much higher state of being. Okay, folks, that's it for today. Dr. Ron Darple signing off for Mind Shock, The Endless Question, a current episode now on 
Anchor FM, going out to many platforms. Check us out again for Healthy Life Net, our other show called Mind Shock! And we'll talk to you later. God bless. Take care.